0: Consider this. 100% of owners will leave their business one day, but few are prepared. Are you? Don't worry. You're in the right place with this podcast, Succession Stories. Host Lori Barkman, the business transition sherpa, guides you from transition to transaction, from building value in your business to letting go. Lori is a business transition and M&A advisor, specializing in growth acquisitions and selling owner-led companies. She's also the author of the Business Transition Handbook. Get your copy and learn how to avoid succession pitfalls and create valuable exit options. Sign up for a Business Transition newsletter at SuccessionStories.com. Show us the love by subscribing to the show and posting a review. We appreciate you. Now, here's this week's Succession Stories with Lori Barkman. Welcome back to the Succession Stories Podcast. If you're not already, please give me a follow on LinkedIn and Instagram at Lori Barkman. Be sure to subscribe to the show and if you enjoy it, leave us a review. Go to ratethispodcast.com/slash succession stories. Today we welcome Alex Neist, a serial entrepreneur and former professional athlete. Alex is the founder of Hostage Tape, a health enhancement product that has quickly scaled into an e-commerce powerhouse, generating seven figures in monthly revenue. Alex shares his succession stories from AFL quarterback to tech company founder and selling the business to a strategic buyer in a cash and equity deal. You'll wanna hear why Alex decided to leave once his equity vested and his journey of self-reflection and personal challenges to overcome. Eventually, it led to the origin story behind hostage tape and how he's creating scalable businesses around commodity products. Alex believes that to get better, you have to be able to confront failure. Enjoy this Succession Stories episode about how to build a scalable business with Alex Neist. Alex, it is so great to be with you on Succession Stories. Welcome.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: We met in Columbus, Ohio, not too long ago, and you were the guy in the room with athletic tape on your nose and the t-shirt that you're wearing right now, which is which is talking about your current company, Hostage and the brand Hostage. So you kind of stood out a little bit, I got to say, and you were somebody that I wanted to understand, like, all right, he's clearly a walking billboard. There's something going on here. There's something cool. And you did eventually get on stage and I learned more about your story, but I had followed up with you and invited you to the show because it is a fascinating story and I'm excited to dive in.
1: Awesome. Yeah. It's, I'm always on brand. If there's, Something that I've learned and always done in the 16, 17, 18 years of being an entrepreneur, I'm just always on brand and I'm always wearing what I've created. I don't know if it's because I love it and I'm trying to make a point or if it's more that Steve Jobs mindset of like, (laughs) I'm just always going to wear the same thing because then it's less I have to think about when I get up every day because I literally, the shirt that you see me wearing... I wear this same shirt or a variation, a different color of it, every single day. Even when my wife and I go on a date, I still wear it.
0: <laughs> it's very recognizable, and I'm going to go with I'm going to go with the branding and not OCD. Yeah,
1: probably. We'll go. <laughs> we'll go with that.
0: We're going to go with that. <laughs> but don't you think there's some element of brand identity that takes you back to your football days? You were a professional football player, and You're wearing that uniform, right? So you've been doing this a long time. Take us back to that time. You were a professional athlete and uh, the sport of football. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, so football was my first love. It was the first thing that like, I'll never forget when I was, I was probably my son's age, my son's 14, and I was probably around 13, 14 years old. I went to a birthday party and we'd all gotten these packs of Tops football cards and I, I, I got a, the pack, I opened it up, and I pulled out a Joe Montana card. Now, I'm dating myself here. This was way back in like the, like the late 80s, early 90s time when Joe Montana was huge. The 49ers were amazing. I pulled this card out, and I, I didn't know who he was. But then all my friends were like, oh, my God, you got a Joe Montana card. Like, he's the best quarterback in the league. And then I went, oh. and then something clicked, and – I just started practicing and practicing. And when I find something that I love, I'm very passionate, which is probably why I'm a great entrepreneur, is that when I find something that I love, I love to play this game, whether it's football or it's the game of business, then I just go all in on it. Yeah. I went all in on football. And then years later, I ended up becoming a professional. So I played, I wanted to be the next Kurt Warner. If anybody in the audience knows who Kurt Warner was, Kurt Warner was a Hall of Famer. He was stocking shelves at, at Hy-Vee, and then he played arena football, and then from the arena football league, went on and became the quarterback for the Rams, Super Bowls, MVPs, Hall of Fame. So he was like this Cinderella story that every young kid could look at and go, "I want to do that." And didn't happen, but I still played a number of years of arena football that really kind of helped develop these relationships and just this, I think, work ethic of how I needed to prepare day in and day out. And all the things I had to do just to become who I wanted to become. And you're competing every day, right? Like when you make it to this high level, nothing's ever guaranteed, right? They're always bringing in new guys to replace you. So it was just that level of competition that I thrived in. I loved preparing. And then from that foundation of sports, I took all those relationships where I learned and I said, I'm going to build a business. And I built a business, my first business around sports. So it was actually a sports video analytics company where we actually, we pioneered this concept of taking video and then chopping it up into pieces with data. So that way then coaches could go in and search for any situation they wanted to, to be able to teach and coach their players more effectively. And nobody was doing this. Everybody was doing it manually by themselves, where we actually pioneered the service of doing it for you. So now all of these teams, all these coaches who didn't have huge staffs, like NFL teams did, college teams did, they had a problem. Their problem was, how do I actually use this video and get anything out of it? And a lot of coaches weren't. They were just, all right, I guess. The game was what it was. I pulled a few things out and then, well, let's just move on because they felt like they would take more time to actually watch the video, analyze it and do their homework. So we enabled that new, this whole new landscape of how teams and coaches could use their video now. And now it's the standard. Like this is what everybody does. Everybody has some sort of a, a product or service that is actually chopping everything up, adding data to it. And so you can use it.
0: Wow. I want to make sure I'm understanding. So the target market was not NFL because they have resources and it was not necessarily the big college teams because they also have resources. So was it the smaller college teams and kind of the local sports team in our neighborhood or who was the target?
1: So ironically, we actually, we targeted college teams to start out with, but with a twist. So what I recognized early on was as much as I loved football, I knew that there was a bigger competitor. So at the time when we started the first business, we bootstrapped it. It was a family business. My brother and I did it. Usually I would say don't start a, a, a business with family, but we did. It worked. It was what it was. You know, you have your fights just because you, you have your egos and, you know, brothers want to fight. But what we did is we, we realized that football was not the market as crazy as it sounded, because that's my love, and that was what I knew really well. We recognized that there was another player in the space that had started when we started, who'd raised funding, gone that route of VC, and got really pretty big, but their core was football. So we said, okay, let's let's acknowledge that there's another part of the market here that they're ignoring, all right? So it's pivoting and understanding a much bigger problem. And the bigger problem was that this competitor was ignoring Olympic sports. And when I say Olympic sports, I mean soccer, basketball, hockey, volleyball, all of the other team sports that maybe aren't as popular in the sense of like just the sure amount of, of kids and the sure amount of like budget that gets allocated to football is really pretty much the most compared to all the others. So he said, all right, you've got a soccer team, for example, where they've got, One coach, many times, and at the college level, maybe two. They've got a 90-minute match. How are they supposed, how's one coach going to take 90 minutes, especially a soccer game where it's a full, the whole thing, 90 minutes of action, right? There's a ton of video there that they need to then go in, analyze, break it down in chunks that they can use it and teach the players. And a lot of these, even college coaches, couldn't do it. So we pivoted and we said, all right, this is the problem we need to solve. And we actually went after college soccer and then we took off from there. And then we expanded into certainly small college. There was a period where we had almost every college national champion um, soccer team uh, using us. But then we, we broadened into smaller college and then in high school, right? And then club soccer and then went to volleyball and, and then hockey and just all these sports. And then it just really blossomed from there. And, and then everybody started to go, holy smokes, look what these guys are doing. And then everybody else started to embrace this concept too.
0: Gotcha, yeah, I love it. You were zigging when they were zagging and, and focused on a niche, expanded it eventually, but started with that niche of soccer. What was the business model?
1: So it was a, it was a SaaS. So basically, it's why I love e com now. SaaS is really hard it's really hard like it's like b2b SaaS, right because you're selling athletic directors you're selling coaches you got to get them on a demo do a sales call essentially and then you're going through a traditional sales cycle right but we would basically sign people up for year-long subscriptions so they would they would get signed up for say a 1500 to 3000 a year subscription that would cover all of their games that they could film, upload them, then we would break them down. And there would be variations on whether or not we would do just their games, or maybe it would include scout games that they would get from other teams and upload, or maybe we would do an entire league conference where everything was broken down so they could scout anybody in the entire league at any point.
0: So was this a software platform that was proprietary to your company?
1: Yeah, so we wrote it. It was completely written in-house by us, and the key there was it was, a, it was a SaaS company, but it was had a layer of service on it, right? So we had actual guys that were going in, watching the video, punching the keys, and then adding tags to it. So it's not like nowadays, there's a lot of automation with AI that's really starting to blossom. And essentially, our, we were human. Intelligence. We had human intelligence behind the keyboard watching the video. So it was a software as a service with a service level added to it. That was what made us unique and very interesting to this whole new market
0: so your your staff would tag and edit and put in the metadata on each clip by player number 36 or whatever that person's name was. So they could search that later and find the information to find that specific clip later.
1: Yeah. It's like waking up the next. So let's say you play a a soccer game last night. You wake up the next day. You can go in and say, all right, I want to see every time Alex had a shot on goal. I want to see every time this team had a, a corner kick. I want to see every time Alex had a touch. Every time Alex had a forward pass. Right. Like imagine just Google searching it, and that's what you could do, and pull up the video, and you could watch those clips.
0: That's super useful for coaches, I would think. And the value prop must have been there because you grew. How did you grow the business? You said you had a sales team
1: through direct sales. No, I mean you're looking at them. Okay,
0: you were the sales team.
1: (laughs) But it was a lot of email spamming for years. I used to buy lists of coaches, and then I would spam. And this was in the early days of email marketing where you could get away with it. And so I would just buy these lists and then I would email the crap out of people and just send them. And then the whole goal was to get people into the funnel to schedule a demo. And when I say schedule a demo, that means, and so what's funny is in this age of zoom, you know, that we're on and that we live in now going through COVID and everything, we had been doing that for 10 years. So, for 10 years prior to that, like this was how we did things, right? We would do back then we used GoToMeeting when book, GoToMeeting was popular along with like, um, you know, WebEx and all that stuff Yeah. before Zoom exploded. And so we would do GoToMeetings with coaches. And this was back when they were like, they couldn't figure out how to pull the meeting up and they thought it was weird. They're like, can't you just give me a call? I'm like, nah, I, <laughs> need show you. I need to show you my screen so we can go through it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah, kind of a throwback.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so your brother was what type of role with you in the business?
1: He was the CTO. So he wrote all the code. He did all the engineering. And then I was purely the business side where I was running the business, you know, finances, sales, marketing. And then from there, obviously, the, the team grew as it started to grow. and And then we ran that for about 16 years. And then in year six, and we completely bootstrapped it. So we didn't raise any funding. I didn't want to raise funding. I felt like if we didn't need to, then don't do it. And what's funny is I actually, so my family has a VC in it. So my sister was a, she was a partner at Kleiner Perkins for, you know, two decades, right? Uh, not, so,
0: not not a small firm, <laughs> pretty <big> a pretty big firm. <laughs>
1: not a very super well-known firm, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: so she was there and she used to always tell me, if you don't need to raise money, don't. Yeah. So we just didn't. Um, plus, who knows? Like it may not have been. I think the whole idea of it being SaaS with a service component wasn't interesting 10 years ago. They thought it wasn't scalable. Whereas now it's very scalable and it's super interesting. And I think we were just ahead of our time to truly raise funding in the way that maybe we could have nowadays. But, um, but yeah, so we bootstrapped it. And then 16 years later, then we sold it. We sold it to a company on a Tel Aviv. Oh, and wow. our how did that
0: come together? Did you put the company on the, on the selling post, like hire an intermediary and
1: yeah, have well, it run so a process? I actually did it myself. I, I didn't did hire a broker to, to do this deal, but, I, I I acknowledged a couple of things in the market that was shifting. And one of them was this concept of just automated filming. So there are a handful of companies that were developing camera technology that could automatically film games. And so I knew that this is where the future is headed in sports. And we're not talking like NFL. We're talking like most amateur sports, right? Most you know below college football but we're talking college all the way down to amateur in all sports being able to use a camera in some form that is just automatically filming the game that either you're putting up or it's installed in the venue so i knew that we needed to find a company that had that technology and we needed to go either partner with them or get acquired by them right so i i identified who the key players were in that space and then i just contacted them and and then i purposely found a couple of them to pit them against each other to create a market right and then whittle it down and then i negotiated the deal myself um which is if if you've ever negotiated with an, an israeli it's they're really good negotiators like that's just their culture whereas i think in our our culture in in america we we don't grow up being taught how to negotiate very well so that was a really, really good learning experience. Going through a, a multi-million-dollar negotiation with, you know, with somebody who knew how to negotiate, and uh, but it was great. We got through it and got through our first exit. So
0: wow, that's exciting. So just to give a sense of size, how many employees were you at that time after 16 years?
1: Oh boy. So I think at that time we were we must have been like seven or eight people. It wasn't okay. It wasn't huge. It wasn't that yeah. big?
0: Yeah. And I don't know if you can share any specifics on revenue or just ballpark.
1: Yeah. So we were we were a seven figure business. It wasn't okay. anything mind blowingly huge like yeah. we're getting with this business now. Yeah. Um, but uh yeah. But it was it was a great learning experience. It was where it was my my real life learning of of just all the things I failed and failed and failed and failed and in so many areas. To now get to where I am now. Right. So it was a necessary education.
0: Yeah. And the terms of the deal, you said you negotiated it yourself and it was your first time doing something like this. You yep. can only imagine how stressful it must have been. Did you have different LOIs, different offers to compare? You said you picked one yep. to to sort of take it to the next step. Was it all cash deal? Was it, is it an asset sale? Was it an equity sale?
1: Yeah. So we just had the one LOI. I didn't, it's not like I had the benefit of having, all right, I got two and I can pit them against each other. Didn't work out that way. Okay. It ended up working out that who we sold to, they gave us the LOI and then nobody else did. But when I evaluated them, I'm like, this just makes sense anyways. Good fit. This company. This company actually had the partnership that they had that was most attractive was they had their automated camera technology in half of the high schools around the country so they already had this framework this foundation laid of all of their technology there and i'm like this just makes sense this is like couldn't be any perfect that we can just immediately inject ourselves into half the schools around the country because they had the technology already there so it just kind of made sense so the deal that that we then negotiated was a it was an equity cash very light on the cash um, I, I think just because of how, how small we were, I didn't have a ton of leverage to be able to truly negotiate like a ton of cash value. So they gave us way more equity in the business than we got cash. It Actually ended up being the cash ended up just kind of paying a lot of debt that we had on the company, you know, that we had kind of accrued, uh, you know, any liabilities we had on the balance sheet. And then the uh, we had a ton of equity in this company that was just growing and growing. And I still own some equity in the company, but the, so I spent, I had to vest two years when we, we signed the deal and then we moved over. And then after those two years I left and then I was able to actually, they raised a, a secondary or they raised a, like a series, I don't know, D or something like that. And then they raised the secondary on that, which then we were able to sell some. And so then I was able to sell some of that. That uh, stock to then use to start this new venture. This episode is sponsored by the best selling book, The Business Transition Handbook: How to Avoid Succession Pitfalls and Create Valuable Exit Options. Business owners will learn how to navigate the emotional and practical nature of the transition process to avoid exit regrets. It's crucial to start planning when time is on your side. So you don't leave money or your happiness on the table. Reading this book, you'll have Lori Barkman, the business transition Sherpa, guiding you along the way. To download a free copy, head to thebusinesstransitionhandbook.com. That's thebusinesstransitionhandbook.com today.
0: So just to rewind, you looked for a strategic fit, found it. Yeah. And negotiated the deal, and then you were with the company for about two years, and then you had, and then you, then you've left. Did you take some time off to think about what you wanted to do
1: next? No, I didn't, because I look like any entrepreneur, um, unless you sell a company for eight figures, nine figures, you've got a pretty decent sized windfall to be able to just take your time. Yeah, but that wasn't the case with this one, it was a relatively smaller exit that was really going to, the value of it was going to happen like years later, right? Uh, With where this company is headed and how, you know, eventually they'll probably get acquired and something's going to happen with them at a fairly significant valuation. So knowing that, but also any entrepreneur that goes through an exit, it's usually never ends well, right? And it was a very difficult time. The first year it's sunshine and rainbows and you you go into it thinking like you can actually make a difference. Uh, But a lot of times we learn that you can't make a difference and they have their way that they want to do it. And so as an entrepreneur, somebody who runs a business, you learn very fast that you can't operate the same way. You can't make all the decisions anymore. You can't. Act like a cowboy in a sense, right? And do the things you know you need to do and and be able to work very fast. Can't work fast anymore when you're with a big company. Things slow down to a grinding halt and you get really frustrated. And so it was really frustrating going into the second year to where I saw writing on the wall that they really didn't want me there. They just wanted to acquire... The business try to plug it in try to learn everything out of me that they could on the team and then after two years get me to leave right because they wanted to know that they could control and call the shots you know rather than knowing that if i'm still there they they couldn't you you can't it's really hard to control an entrepreneur right? That ran his business. It's no matter where he's at. And so I think it was uh, just a very clear, like, all right, we got to ride this out. uh, So that way then we have everything we need and then he can leave. And then we know we've got full power. And as frustrating as it was, I, I just knew midway between the second year that, okay, it's time. You were ready. I was ready. And I knew, I knew I knew that. All right, I had to wait it out for that final year to get to you know past the the vesting final vesting period, and then once I did that, then I then I exited. I left. Okay. So,
0: so yeah, there's probably a lot of emotion that you went through to to leave, but you did have something contractual that held you there for for two years, right. and then. You said, okay, I'm going to do something different. So let's talk about that. What did you decide to do?
1: So during that time of the final year, I, I kept thinking to myself, what do I want to do? What am I going to do? Because when I start something, I said it earlier that I do things I'm really passionate about. I'm a really passionate guy. So I wanted to do something that, I could really go all in on and I didn't know what it was yet. And I didn't just want to pick something and then think like, well, I can make a lot of money with this because most of the time that doesn't work. Right. You truly, you truly have to find something that you, you can wake up every single day, seven days a week and feel amazing about and continue to, to put everything into it. And so I was going through a really difficult time in my personal life at the time. And So it was through that difficulty, I was self-evaluating, what did I need to do to improve as a man, improve as a husband, and improve as a, just a father, right? Because I had two kids. And one of the things was my health, because when you, when you play sports your whole life and then you retire, you you become a dad, you become a businessman, your health kind of takes a dive, Right. And my health took a dive. And so I said, all right, maybe I need to figure out my sleep because I, I, I was snoring so bad that it actually it sent my wife into the other room, uh, wow. which, is, which is really part of the whole struggle yeah. that that I went through this difficult time of that my wife and I had had yeah. because my snoring was so awful. And then it it really became a catalyst. It became a catalyst in the relationship of where things kind of broke down, right? Yeah. And so it was from there that I started to explore like, okay, well, what do I got to do? Because most of us think, most of us guys that have issues with sleeping or, or maybe we don't know we have issues with sleeping, we just don't know whether it's good or bad. Like a lot of us snore as we get older. We don't think anything of it. But we really shouldn't be snoring. It's not good for you at all, right? And especially if it negatively impacts your relationship and your partner, you know that's even worse. So I thought, all right, how do I how do I improve my snoring? What do I do? So I went on Amazon and I looked for like anti-snoring things. and some of the things you see are these mouth guards that you make. you know, you put them in, you burn your mouth, like hurt your jaw. and that didn't work. But then the more that I dug into this concept and went down the rabbit hole, I discovered an article written by James Nestor. And James Nestor wrote a best-selling book called Breath. If you haven't read it, you got to read it. Amazing book. And he talks about this experiment where they went to Stanford Medical Center and they plugged their nose for 10 days. And they were going to record both with the doctors as well as, well as anecdotally what, how they felt. And so when they did that, they developed sleep apnea, snoring, really dangerously low levels of blood oxygen. And so then after the 10 days, they unplugged their nose, they taped their mouth shut, and everything went away in a day or two.
0: Wow, that's incredible.
1: So it was at that moment that I went, whoa, so you mean to tell me that this is mouth breathing this is a mouth breathing issue and i thought how have i been a high level athlete my whole life and our coaches have never taught us this they never taught us the importance of keeping our mouth shut and breathing through our nose right it seems to be this concept that's been lost in western civilization here and i don't i don't know why i'm, I'm just not sure why and even james talks about it he, he doesn't really know why it's lost either but it just isn't something that we really talk about anymore, and now it's starting to become this this topic that a lot of people are becoming more aware of, especially with companies like me who spend as much money as I do, marketing about it. So, so I I thought, wow, okay, there's a business here. Okay, there's a business around this concept, um, because I went on Amazon and I bought some just cheap mouth tape, right? When I mean, you do it for the first time. You don't know what to get. You don't know how to use it. You don't know what to get. So I just bought something and I put it on. When I woke up the next day, I felt like a teenager when I woke up. I felt like I had so much energy and I couldn't believe that, holy crap, this worked. And keep in mind that I was anxious putting the tape on and going to sleep. It's a normal reaction that everybody has of, wait a minute, putting tape over your mouth, are you going to die? Like, what if your nose gets clogged? Are you just going to like not wake up? But I did it and got through it, woke up, felt amazing. And and that was when I realized that, okay, I can take this product and I can create an amazing brand around it. And I'll never forget it was, I think it was Moise Ali. Moyes Ali was the founder of Native, Native Deodorant, Right. And he had said something that resonated with me where you can take any commodity and create an amazing brand around it. And then you've got a good business. So I figured, okay, we've got tape. It's a commodity. And if we create a really cool, amazing, unique brand around it, then we've got something there. So I took cues from Liquid Death Liquid Death is this amazing water company that's all the rage right now in the, you know, in the business world of what they've done, how they've done it. And it's just they flip marketing on its head.
0: It's water, right? right? It's just regular water in a a cool can.
1: (laughs) Water, right. But they marketed it really cool and just completely different to get your attention. And I thought that's what we got to do. We have to play with it, have some fun but create a brand that is inspiring to men. And I wanted to target men specifically, right? Yes, women have the issue too, but more men, probably 75% of the population of people who have this issue are men, right? So majority of them are men, but I also knew that I wanted to create a product that resonated with men. and, And that was how I was gonna use the marketing to do it. Right. So uh, what's funny about that is, so when I was mouth taping, then I was mouth taping for a while and kind of noodling on the idea of what to do, how to do it. Cause you know, when you, when you want to start a new idea, no matter who you are, sometimes it always takes you time to finally take the leap. Right. And to do it. And I had been listening to my first million, you know, um, Sean Perry and Sam Parr, those guys. I love listening to to that pod because it was just a couple of dudes who had gone through similar things that I'd gone through. They had both started companies, sold them, gone through exits, and then they were always talking about ideas. And so it was them talking through cool ideas and different businesses to start that then made me go, All right, I'm going to do it. And one of the things I always used to tell my kids was when they were around me, right, during the time when I was mouth taping, I would say, Hey, guys. I'm going to put tape on my mouth. It's going to look like I'm being held hostage. So don't freak out. <laughs> Did lo they freak behold, out? <laughs> lo and behold, like it turns out that hostage tape would become the name of this brand that we would create. Right. So I thought, this is it. Right. Because we could, we could play with this. We could play with hostage tape in this really cool way of, uh, because certainly everybody listening right now, is thinking hostage tape, why would you call it that? Like, why would you call it hostage tape? So, number one, the obvious is when you put tape in your mouth, kind of look like you're being held hostage. That's the obvious. But there's a flip side to it that we wanted to lean in and tap into this core emotion that people are feeling and this core emotion of you feel held hostage by your partner and you don't know what to do. Right, Or you feel held hostage by your poor sleep and you don't know what to do. Right, So those two, and then knowing that just using the word hostage was going to get attention. You're scrolling through your feed. You're going to stop and go, what the hell is this? And it's going to get people to remember you. And I think to this day, everybody that I meet, everybody that I talk to, in every form of whether it's somebody who uh, is a vendor of ours or an influencer or a famous person or whoever it is, they always say, oh dude, I see you guys everywhere. But I think it's because it's so memorable. The brand itself is so memorable and we've done such a good job of actually creating this, this image around it that we've given this illusion that we are everywhere. Right Because of just the name hostage tape,
0: yeah, no, absolutely. There's a couple things I want to double click on. One is the targeting. You said you're targeting men, right but it affects the partner, which would be, if you know the partner is female, the female partner feeling held hostage by the situation. So are you also targeting women for that reason, or just all the advertising, all the brand, it's it's geared towards men?
1: It's very masculine on purpose. Yeah. So, and what's funny, you know, what's funny about that is, is the, the ramifications of it that I learned later, because I'm very new to e-com, right? We're only a year and a half. I mean, we, we launched the product March of last year. Okay. That's a year and six, seven, eight months. So very new to e-com. So I didn't understand CPMs very well. CPMs being like how much it costs to actually market to somebody. Specifically on like Facebook, which is cost per
0: thousand is what it stands
1: for. Yeah. So what I didn't know and what I know now was that decision to go all in on men was really smart. And the reason being is CPMs for women, especially middle-aged women, right? Like women who are um, at home, like the 30 to 50 year old demographic is probably the most expensive CPM demographic out there because statistics show that they're the ones that spend the most money right? Of, of men and women. And that demographic spends the most money. And so, so many marketers go after that demographic. It's actually twice as expensive for us to market to women of that age versus to men. So that was, I didn't do this on purpose, but I, I've learned now later that, oh, that was actually a really smart decision <laughs> of oh, going after the men.
0: Yeah.
1: It was, uh, we just, I just wanted to target men because knowing that, knowing what I went through what I didn't know, I wanted to just go all in on that. And I wanted to to target a, a man that went through the, the same issues that I went through, which was if I was going to use mouth tape, I wanted it to be a brand that I liked, that I resonated with, as well as a product that actually solved a few problems that everything else out there didn't meaning uh, like facial hair. So uh, most men have some sort of facial hair, whether it's stubble, a little bit of a mustache or a beard or whatever it is. And regular mouth tape does not work very well with facial hair. So that was one. That was one really big differentiator. So if anybody ever said, well, why wouldn't I just use 3M micropore tape? Then I could say, well, our tape works really well with facial hair. And here's why. Right. And then another one is just, putting tape all the way across your mouth and having it be strong enough because there is, there is a a form of using mouth tape where maybe you just put a little strip and that might work for some people. Maybe it works for uh, some women. Uh, But for a lot of us men, just putting a strip, like we just pop that right off. And so it wasn't strong enough. Right. And then even some gentle paper tapes that you can use they're just not strong enough. We needed something stronger because anything I was trying, I was just popping right off. And a lot of men you talk to would say the same thing. Like they can't find anything that works or if they do, they have to put multiple strips on it just to get it to hold. So it was this whole concept of, look, I'm going to make a tape that's not for everyone, right? And so I think that's an important concept, right, for the audience is that, you know, when you build a brand and you build a product, You don't need to build a product that is broad for everybody. Many times you're better niching down and going to a very specific target market, right? And building the best product and the best service for that demographic, which then if it's good and it grows, starts to then infiltrate into these other areas, which we've seen. Now we see a ton of women, I would say. A quarter of our users are women and they just discover it because of how big we've gotten. Right. And they buy it and then they buy it for their men or they buy it for themselves. Right. Another demographic is CPAP wearers. I don't specifically target CPAP wearers. um, And a CPAP is for people who have pretty bad sleep apnea and they wear a mask that they put over their nose that helps blow air to help, You know, their sleep disorder, they still need to keep their mouth shut in order for that machine to work well. And so we get a ton of people who wear CPAPs who buy hostage state because it feels really comfortable with the mask that they need to put on. Then that helps make the machine work better.
0: Let's talk about the machine of the company. So you your prior company, which, by the way, I never asked you the name of the business. What was the name of your first company we talked about?
1: I'd rather not mention it.
0: Oh, okay. So company A that you had <laughs> we'll started. We'll keep
1: it anonymous. We'll
0: call anonymous it the video. Company this, A. <laughs> And then of was company a that was a sports video company, you had software technology and you had people. Now you have a brand and you have a product that you've gotten manufactured by a third party, I assume, and you need to set up fulfillment. So did you set up your own fulfillment or is it fulfilled through all through third parties?
1: Yeah. So that's definitely when you get into ecom for the first time, one of the main questions everybody always asks themselves is, well should I just fulfill this out of my basement to start with? Or are there companies out there that do this for me, which is called a 3PL. And for me, I did the math and I'm like, well, if I did it myself, I can have an office. And I like, I calculated out, I reverse engineered what maybe my year would look like if I paid for the people, the the space, just, the the postage, like everything. And when I start a business, I always do a two year PL. And so I created a two year PL of what my first year would look like and then going into the second year. So I had everything planned out, all the numbers done. So I knew where we were going to scale to. And I went, there's no way I can fulfill this. By myself and even try to hire a team. Like, that's just, this is insane. It, Cause we were going to be way too big to even consider doing it. That I said, All right, what are my options? And so then we hired a 3PL to do it for us. And it was, you know, one of the best decisions we ever made. Cause looking back on it, everybody that I talked to, every, every experienced e com guy, will tell you, dude, if you don't have to do self-fulfillment, don't do it. Just hire, hire a good 3PL that you know is going to be great. It's going to give you the lowest cost possible. It's going to get the product where it needs to be in a good amount of time. Other than that, don't self-fulfill. That's what I keep hearing from most experienced guys.
0: Gotcha. Well, that's good to hear. I'm a former 3PL industry person, so... Okay. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about growth. How are you growing this business so fast? You said you launched it you know, at the time of this recording. It's about a year and a half ago. And I know from listening to other interviews that you've done, you've invested a lot of time and energy to explore. You mentioned Facebook advertising, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure you're doing other types of ads. Contrasting with the sales process you had with your software company, it's really different, isn't it? How are you going about all this growth?
1: It's extremely different. And it's funny, like when I hear both industries talk about it, it's almost like when you hear actors say, man, I really want to be a professional athlete. And then the athletes say, I really want to be an actor. It's like the e guys think having a, a great SaaS company is the way to go. And then the, the SaaS guys think having e is the way to go. It's really strange. The <laughs> grass
0: is always the, greener.
1: Yeah, I guess so. So the, yeah, so we we launched in March of last year. And let me say this. All of our success, it's it's kind of like this iceberg, right? For as big as we've gotten in the direction we're headed, we're an eight-figure company right now. So we'll do Amazing. eight figures this year. Right. Uh, in just under a year and a half, which, um, I mean, it sounds crazy. Like who would have thought that, a year and a half ago when I started it, that this is where we'd be, but this was part of the plan. Like I had this in my P and of us being here. So it's not surprising. It's just always like we did it. Like we got to where I thought we were going to get. This is awesome. But it's this, it's all the work that I'd done in my first business, right? All the stuff I failed at that I learned. So now I brought that 16 years of experience into this thing. And I knew exactly what I had to do. So it was easy. And so it wasn't like it's it's like you watch any any great person at their craft. You know, you watch a, a quarterback on TV and you're like, wow, he makes it look so easy. Well, it's because he's been doing it for 20 years. Right. So it looks easy. You might think it's easy, but he spent 20 years. He spent that's his success tax. Right. 20 years to get to there. So my success tax was the 16 years of failing and succeeding at the previous business to get to this point. And so the scaling of this was really all about Facebook, right? Facebook ads are this amazing mechanism to be, to just pour money into and then to get a return back. And so when we first started, what a lot of people do is they'll hire an agency. They'll hire an outside agency to run their Facebook ads. But I knew that Facebook was going to be my largest expense. It was going to be where I was putting the most money in along with inventory. And I knew that if that's the case, I need to understand how to do it. Because what I'm not going to do is pay six figures a month to some agency who's then going to give it to some 23-year-old kid who... It's just trying to get a good paycheck and then go out on the weekends. Who doesn't really, truly maybe care. This is my life. And so I wanted to understand every nuance around it because I also knew that what's going to move the needle the most, right? As a business owner, somebody who's starting a business, you got to have your fingers on all the things that move the needle the most. And then the things that don't, you can delegate off to somebody else. And Facebook was one that I was going to do. I was going to manage it. So I spent six months, at least six months, learning how to do Facebook ads. And we sucked at Facebook ads for like the whole first half of the year. And, and then because primarily I couldn't get video to work. Because video is really one of the best mediums that if you get it right in Facebook, it crushes really, really well. And we could not get our video ads to work. So we just, we were like, all right, I guess static, static images are the only way that we're going to be able to do it. And, and then we finally discovered the right video formula and then it really took off. But I think it was also, we found product market fit. And when you find product market fit, then marketing just becomes easier. And then everybody starts talking about it. And then um, the other, yeah, other piece of that was as I was seeding product. One of the best marketing dollars that you can spend is actually getting product into people's hands, right? so i was I was strategically picking influencers and famous people on podcasts in these spaces that I knew if I get it into their hands and they like it, they're gonna talk about it. So I just kept sending this up to people. and then Mark bell, he's a he's a really well known, fitness influencer. He runs his own business and he's most well-known in like the, the lifting, the, the weight room, you know, bodybuilding, kind of that whole realm. But he's got a really popular podcast that, that a lot of people listen to. So when he messaged me, he's like, dude, your mouth tape, it's the best I've ever tried. It's amazing. And then that really helped too. He helped us legitimize it with other well known people and now all the well known people out there like use us you know like tom Segura was one where I don't know where Tom Segura he's a really well known comedian just did a special a special on Netflix he ordered a year supply and his what him and his wife they <laughs> in mom's house, they use hostage tape you know wow. um and then uh there's others too right like uh like we just signed up Uh, like Tiki Barber. Tiki Barber is the all-time leading rusher for the Giants, right? So he's a hostage-safe guy. And then uh, we got some other ones too. Just a whole bunch of people that are just now coming to us that want to work with us because they love the product. It's just, there's nothing else like it. So
0: Wow. So it's an amazing growth. As you look forward, Alex, how do you think about this business? Is this a one product company, is this a, I think I may have asked you this question when we met, is this a branded house or a house of brands?
1: Yeah, this is a house of brands. And so what I knew learning from my last company was I love to play the game. I love to play the game of business. And I think this illusion that a lot of young founders fall into is the, I'm going to build a company, raise funding, sell it for a ton of money, and then retire off to the beach. Dude. You talk to every guy who's done that. They'll tell you the same thing. They've all done it six months, a year later, they're bored and they got to get back in the game. So I knew that I needed to keep playing the game and I want to keep playing the game until I die. I don't ever want to retire just because I love this too much. And so we have a um, nice media is our parent company and I wanted to create a legacy company, a company that. Could last, maybe my son grows up and runs it, but it was a company that had my name, had our legacy, and will be here long after I die. So it's nice media. And then our first brand was Hostage Tape, knowing that it was going to be a brand that I didn't want to sell, but I I expected that we might sell it, right? Right. Knowing that, all right, I've got a second brand, QB Grip, uh, that we've got. And QB Grip is a brand where I'm documenting QB Grip history. And then we have a product that's coming out with that uh, within the next year. And then we'll have other brands too that we continue to grow. But this idea of exiting out of that one, it's there. It's like my CFO tells me, it's like, Alex, here's the thing. If If somebody comes to you and brings you a, you know, a nine-figure deal, 10-figure deal, or whatever we think this is gonna get to, you have a fiduciary responsibility to you and your family to take it seriously. <laughs> so um, but a part of me is like I don't ever it's such good cash flow that it's it's a recurring product that people buy and they use it every day. It's not like a one sale product. So it because of the cash flow. I don't I don't want to get rid of it because I know that it our cash, our um, our recurring revenue, it compounds every month, right? And so I don't want to get rid of that. Like as an as a business owner, when you have a small product that has a high margin that ships very lightly, right? Really easily, that people use every day. Like that's a unicorn product right there. And I don't want to let that go. But Certainly, if somebody comes to me, I mean, this is a billion-dollar brand. That's our goal. It will be a billion-dollar brand. So when somebody, when we cross that threshold and somebody comes to me and offers us a billion dollars for it, then, yeah, we'll seriously have to consider it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would hope so. Sometimes those little bluebirds do come a calling when you least expect. But what I always like to say on this show and with my clients is if your company is ready to sell at any time. That's the best situation, because if you sell, like you said, at a great price, that's a win. And if you don't and you continue to have good financials, good growth potential and it's fun, then that's a win, too. As you said, it's the best of both worlds.
1: Well, I think it's interesting is like when you reverse engineer the sell, you go, "Okay, who would buy us? And and then you go, well, once we get past 500 million to a billion there's not that many who could afford to buy us other than the really big CPG companies, right? So you kind of look at and it go, okay, I guess those are ones who could buy us. But then below that, there's probably private equity. And I feel really good knowing that after this year, for the next couple of years, we're going to be extremely attractive for I think private equity to want to scoop us up. But I just don't know that I want to, I'm not, not going to sell it for eight figures.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you're building a billion dollar brand, as you said, and you're also in the other conversation talking about the potential legacy with your family and that maybe one day your, your son might come into the company. So the future is yours and what you make of it. You talked about product market fit. What I keep thinking about is founder market fit too. And your story just has all those elements, you know, of why you chose this product, why it's important to you, the mission that you're on, that's super important. And if you were going for for money from an investor, they're going to look for that. And you're not, you're bootstrapped, which is is incredible. But at some point, there's going to be that situation where you're looking for the fit with the exit. And I'm sure you'll find it, you know, whatever it is. I'm grateful to have you on the early side of your story. And I know one day you'll come back and we'll talk about the next side of your story. I want to shift to kind of a mic drop question. You know, I know you got so many lessons learned and share maybe one or two. What are the top two things that you would say to an entrepreneur who's going through their journey to build their business, grow their business? What are the two things that you've learned along the way?
1: I think one of the biggest things is you have to be okay to fail. You have to fail to get better. And you got to be okay with that. You have to be able to confront failure in the face and understand that it's these difficult challenges that help shape you to become this stronger, better, more amazing entrepreneur. Because if you don't have those failures, you can't learn, you can't get better. So In the moment when it's happening, rather than thinking, woes me, oh my God, nothing's going right. You have to shift. It's like what Tony Robbins always said. You shift your mind two degrees, right? Just that small degree of separation completely changes the trajectory of what can happen. And you shift it and you think, okay, this is all happening to make me better. It's all happening to make me stronger. What am I going to learn from this? How am I going to react, right? Where am I going to go with this? Uh, that's one of the biggest things. And then I think another thing is something that I tell my, I tell my kids all the time that I learned was you can, you can accomplish anything you want. You just gotta work really hard for it.
0: Those are great messages. Really, really powerful. I asked I learned all that my guests. My mom taught me
1: that one. My mom is an amazing woman who both my mom and my dad are amazing, amazing parents. My dad was a, he was a self-made doctor uh, when he was in high school. They didn't have any money and he knew in order to get to college, he had to get a scholarship. So he got a scholarship, went on, went to medical school and then created his own practice and everything. But he was the, he was the example of doing, i watched him do it. Right. But my mom was, was saying it was telling us she was validating us as kids. She was, she was using her words to say, "Hey, you can do anything you want. You just gotta work for it. You can do it, right?" So she was always the one telling us, while well, then we were watching my dad actually do it. And I, I think that's something too. Is as too many that too many of our kids and young kids these days they don't they don't get that. They don't get that from their parents. Their parents right now aren't maybe doing as good of a job telling their kids, like in a, in a constructive way, right? Obviously there's, you don't want to give them a false sense of like, you could do anything you want, but it's no, you actually can do anything you want. You just have to be willing to do what it takes to get to that point, right? Right.
0: Yeah, your advice from both parents and seeing them in action is a perfect blend of what you're talking about. It's having the confidence, having the vision, and also rolling up your sleeves and doing it. And you're absolutely doing that, Alex. Do you have a favorite quote about entrepreneurship or leadership, something that you can share with me?
1: Well, I think it's the the second thing I said. That's one of my favorite quotes that I say is, you can do anything you want. You just got to work hard for it.
0: There you go. Alex, if people want to learn more about you, connect, learn more about the product, about Hostage Tape, what's the good way for them to do that?
1: Yes. So don't let bad sleep hold you hostage. Go to HostageTape.com, and then you can go to any of our social handles, which is just Hostage Tape. Perfect.
0: Perfect. Alex, thank you so much for this conversation. I learned a ton by talking with you. It was great to meet you in person, and I'm sure we'll meet again at some point. And I'll be watching and cheering for you and the brand all along the way.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks. Appreciate it. Great being here.
0: So, to the listeners, be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss a future episode. And if you listen and love the podcast enjoy do me a favor leave me a rating and review on apple or spotify it enables us to reach more people and help them along the way for show notes and more information about succession stories go to successionstories.com tune in next time for more insights from transition to transaction i hope that today's episode resonated with you What actions will you take as a result? If you want to grow, sell, or transition your business, our strategic transition planning process provides clarity and objectivity on the big questions that may be weighing on your mind. Make an intention and take the next step. Set up a complimentary consultation with me to discuss your goals at thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com. That's thebusinesstransitionsherpa.com.